0: Before you leave today, uh, as you go, you should be sure to welcome back Mike and Jenny Guy. Mike and Jenny are with us after being in the South for six weeks or so for their training with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, They are on their way to Papua New Guinea and they have received much needed training and we're pleased that they have gone. Even more pleased that they have come back uh, for uh, the time being until God sees fit for them to go uh, start serving uh, on the field full-time in Papua New Guinea. So greet them, welcome them back, and uh, uh, assure them of your prayers as they complete the final steps that they need in preparation to go. Uh, when I was growing up in uh, Perry, New York, I spent a lot of time at 14 Olin Avenue because it was the home of Bill and Carol Lapp. Now... Um, since many of you are Lancaster County natives, when I mentioned to you that I had friends whose last name was Lap, a certain image might be coming to your mind. But let me assure you that the Laps are not Amish, uh, but they were among our closest uh, friends. I was thinking this week of the number of ways that our family connected with the Laps. They lived not too far away from us. They uh, were a part of our church. Uh, my dad and Mr. Lapp for a while were uh, business partners and uh, uh, their office was in our, uh, the basement of our house for a number of years. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lapp were my Sunday school teachers, my VBS leaders. Uh, we worked together in Awana. I, I spent hours playing with one of their sons, Aaron Um, most of the time in the pine trees that lined the back of his property. They had a series of uh, eight pine trees and the goal was to get from one end to the other of the pine trees without touching the ground. Uh, I was in their oldest son, Adam's, uh, wedding. Uh, I sang with Mr. Lapp in the church choir. We played our instruments together. Uh, When Allison, their their daughter, gave birth to her first son, visiting her was the first hospital visit that I ever made as a pseudo-seminarian. Whenever we go to uh, Perry to visit, um, if we see them, Mr. and Mrs. Lapp always smile very broadly. They're always happy to see us. Um, Allison is an excellent athlete, and her father faithfully attended all of her games, all of her matches, and all of her meets. Uh, my dad always went to our games, too. Uh, he was always there, but as far as I can remember, he never, ever uttered our, a word while he was at the game. He watched hundreds of games, high school athletic events, silently. I discovered this week it's because when my sister was 13 years old and entered the world of junior and senior high athletics, she said to my parents, "You can come, but you better keep your mouth shut." <laughs> like any 13-year-old girl would, right? Don't embarrass me, right? Well, Allison may have told that to Mr. Lap, Bill Lapp, but he did not listen. Uh, Bill Lapp uh, was, uh, from the time the game started to the time it ended, he, uh, never ceased cheering or admonishing or encouraging his kids. And he had a huge, he has a huge voice. Sometimes if the wind was just right, you could hear Mr. Lapp at my house a half a mile away from the high school cheering on his children come on allison come on allison go run 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 you can beat her don't let her get by you go 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 now how would you respond if you were there and you heard mr lap cheering for his daughter I, i imagine if you were allison you might be a little bit embarrassed um uh, sometimes when I heard Mr. Lapp half a mile from the school at my house, I was thankful for my father's faithful, silent presence. But I bet Allison was, was happy too because she has memories the, even now of her father cheering for her. If you were a coach or a referee and Mr. Lapp was there on the sidelines, you would probably find him a little annoying. Uh, Mr. Lapp had opinions, and he was never silent about them. Uh, he was um, confident uh, that when a call was made that was bad, he let the ref know about it. And, and if you were there, and you were the parent of a child from the other team, Mr. Lapp might make you angry. <laughs> Why are you there cheering, man, for my daughter's failures and inadequacies? You're cheering on your kid wishing death and doom upon mine. Doesn't seem very nice. Some of you have been moms and dads on the sideline, and maybe you're one of those parents like Mr. Lapp. Uh, If so, then you'll be able to understand how the Apostle Paul wants you to think, or one way the Apostle Paul wants you to think about God the Father in a passage that I want to direct your attention to this morning. So the scriptures want you to understand that God the Father cheers on his children. He is completely behind, completely supportive of those who are his own. If you're not his own, you might wonder about the strength and the level of his support. But if you are his, God is behind you. More than that, actually, the Bible speaks to us about the fact that God not only supports us, He is intimately and sovereignly involved in sustaining and upholding and providing for his own. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to me to the book of Ephesians, if you would. The book of Ephesians is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We started last week looking at the book of Ephesians, and this morning we're going to consider the uh, three or four verses from chapter one of Ephesians. You'll find Ephesians toward the end of the Bible, well into the New Testament. Again, the page number is in your bulletin. Um, it's after Romans, it's after 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, before Revelation, before Hebrews. There it is, this little book. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a portion of the first section of Ephesians, and I want to establish the context of these verses. Ephesians begins with an extended blessing. It's a very Jewish form of writing. The text begins in verse 3, Praise be to the God, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, after that beginning, Paul writes a sentence that is 202 words long, which is something that your English teacher would never allow. Uh, In fact, most English Bible translations divide this long sentence that starts in verse 3 and ends in verse 14 into many sentences. Uh, And the main verb in this one sentence is praise be, or blessed be, or um, God is worthy of all praise. And then after he makes that assertion, he tells us why God is worthy of all praise. And he speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each one of those sections is is finished with an assertion about God's glory. Um, Look at verse 6. It says he praises God the Father in verses 3 through 6. And then in verse 6 he says, "...to the praise of His glorious grace." Then he speaks about the Son, and in the end of verse 12 he says, uh, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. There's that phrase again. And then look at the end of verse 14, after speaking about the Holy Spirit, the last lines of that verse say, to the praise of His glory. See, what Paul is telling us here in this uh, repeated stanza, uh, these words that are very theologically rich and doctrinally dense, Paul is telling us what doctrine, what theology is for. The end of doctrine, the end of theology, is always supposed to be praise and wonder and delight in God. So you can open up the Bible and dig deeply into the treasures about what it says of God, and when you read it, you're to, to finish by saying, that is awesome, God is great. He is worthy to be praised. That's what theology is for. Uh, if you go to an art museum and, and you go in and you look at all the technique and you see the beautiful colors and the, the intricacy of the brushwork and the, the wonder of the perspective that the artist, artist has chosen and you notice all those technical things but you don't leave with a sense of satisfaction or delight or uh, thinking about what the artist was communicating, you have not really seen the art. You may think great things about God, you may see, you may notice wonderful truths about God, but if it doesn't leave you saying, wow, you're not thinking about it correctly. Uh, Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He said, for my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await others. In other words, he's saying, give me a good thousand-page systematic theology. Don't give me the daily bread. I want the big one. Why? He says, I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. All I need is the pipe and I'll be okay. I'm teaching a theology class right now at uh, Lancaster Bible College and I told my students last week that the result of their study of the doctrines of the Bible is that it should move them to worship. And if it doesn't, either they're not paying attention or it's being poorly taught. And in my classroom, sometimes both of those things happen. Now, Paul writes these words of theological praise. He wants to encourage the Ephesians. He wants them to delight in this. That's the main application of all of these verses. Look at God and be amazed. That, that's his main point. But he wants to encourage them too. You see, the original recipients of this letter were a beleaguered people. They lived in Ephesus. And all around them were people who worshipped false gods, who practiced magic and sorcery. And they go through life and, and, and their neighbor would say to them, Hey, you know... I've got a secret potion, and if I use it, it can help your daughter get over that cough that she's been having. She's coughing a lot, of, a lot and trust me, I have some magic that will help. Or uh, maybe their, their brother-in-law says to him, you know, you just need to offer the right sacrifices at the temple, and then your business would take over, take off, and things would be better financially for your family. you just got to go offer the right sacrifices. Your problem is that you're not at the temple enough. Um, all these people are, are making these claims about the magic and the power and the, the spiritual influence they have. And these Ephesians must have been wondering, what's going on? Is, is God going to help us? Does Jesus Christ offer help for us in these circumstances? Here we are on the field and there are all kinds of voices from the sideline. Are, are any of them from the God of the Bible? The Ephesians had this struggle, but they're not alone in that. Everyone in this room, every follower of Christ, reaches a point when they think they're at the end of their resources, that they have nothing left. Uh, This week, Pat Robertson made news. Perhaps you saw this. If you don't follow this, good for you. But Pat Robertson, who's on the 700 Club, Um, somebody wrote in or called in or asked him his opinion. He said to Pat Robertson, he said, my wife has Alzheimer's disease. She's been recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Is it okay if I divorce her? And Pat Robertson says, sure, go ahead. It's a terrible thing to say. It's ungodly. It's unbiblical. The man should be removed from the airwaves by any Christian with a conscience. But anyway, uh, Pat Robertson says this. Any three-year-old who's ever been to a wedding can see that that sort of statement that he made contradicts... You don't have to be a Christian to understand how that contradicts in sickness and in health till death do us part. It's a terrible thing to say. Uh, the co-host on the show even said to him, she's trying to... Really, Pat? This is what you, what you believe? That it's okay to divorce your spouse if they get the Alzheimer's disease? And and uh, uh, she she said to him, the co-host said... But, but uh, don't we make a promise uh, uh, until death do us part? And, and Pat Robertson says that death is, uh, Alzheimer's is like a death sentence, so it's okay. It's a terrible thing to say. Uh, denying of the gospel. Uh, soon we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 5 that talks about how husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And Christ loved his bride, the church, when she was in a deplorable spiritual condition. So uh, Pat Robertson has been taken to the woodshed by many people, um, and uh, has been shown the, the flaws of his thinking, and and that's good. That's that's true. That's helpful. But what if you're that spouse, and, and you have a husband or a wife in that situation? On good days, in 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 good circumstances, you wake up to yourself. Wake up and you say to yourself, "Today is another opportunity for me." for Christ's sake, to serve. But what do you do on those days when you wake up and you think to yourself, I feel stuck today. Everybody feels that way. In some, on some days, you wake up and you think, I'm stuck in, in this situation with, with a, a person who's uh, failing, with a, a situation that's, that's broken. I'm I'm stuck. What if you're a young man or a young woman and you walk into a college campus for the first time and you're being bombarded by this onslaught of ideas that, that whether or not they're presented hostily, they just stand in opposition to what you were always taught about the Bible and about Jesus Christ. And uh, maybe those ideas, they're, they're just shaking you a little bit and the people around you who don't believe those things at all and never claim to, they seem to be having a whole lot more fun than you are. Um, Where does the energy, where does the conviction come from to stand your ground at those moments? In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, Paul tells us that God the Father has exercised his sovereign power to provide us with every resource that we need. Let me say that again. God the Father has exercised his sovereign power to provide us with every resource that we need. Uh, Let's read the text, shall we? Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. This morning, I want to direct your attention to two streams that run through these verses. uh, God's sovereign power and His provision of resources his sovereign power, and his provision of resource. Be encouraged because God, with a power that is greater than any other source that is coming against you, has given us what we need to uh, stand up, to endure, to make it. Now, first I want to talk about God's sovereign power. And I imagine immediately as you were reading verses 4 and 5, perhaps you noticed words that prompt a great deal of controversy in the church. There they are, verse 4. He chose us. If that's not controversial enough, I'll tell you a a different translation. He elected us. And then in verse 5, He predestined us. I wonder how you respond to those words in the Bible. Um, uh, You can't look at these words uh, without in some way entering into a stream of debate in the church that's hundreds of years old. Uh, It's the controversy Uh, with these words uh, peeking up its head over the relationship between God's sovereignty and human free will. You, You might be entering the argument as a Calvinist or an Arminian, these words are, that maybe if you've been around the church for a while, maybe would ring some sort of bells. Election and predestination, these two words here are Calvinist Doctrines. And sometimes the God of John Calvin is, is depicted as a tyrant, a cruel, despotic overlord who on a whim chooses some people, whether they like it or not, for heaven and chooses other people, whether they want it or not, for hell. God looks and says, heaven, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven. Or, or as some people uh, uh, depict it, uh, you're Jewish, okay, hell. You're Muslim, okay, you're, you're going to hell. Uh, you're a Hindu? Uh, hell. Lutheran? Hell. Baptist? Heaven. Uh, Catholic? Hell. This, this is the way some people talk about this doctrine, right? Hmm. Are, are we robots? Is God the divine programmer and uh, he rolls over our will, which is just an illusion in the first place? I've read this to you before, but I really like how our church's doctrinal statement tries to summarize things, this issue. It doesn't answer all the questions that we have, but it's a good statement. Listen to it. it. Our doctrinal statement says, We believe that God works everything in accordance with his perfect will, though his sovereignty does not eliminate nor minimize human responsibility. God's foreknowledge is exhaustive and not dependent on human decisions and actions. Again, it doesn't answer every question that we have. No one who advocates or believe uh, believes strongly in election or predestination has the answer to every question. Uh, but we believe it because it's here in Scripture. W- what I want to do this morning um, is, is I want to give you here, while we're talking about these, just a few ideas, a few thoughts about election to hang your thoughts on so that you think about this in a biblical framework. See, the problem with election and predestination is not the words, it's not the language. The words are simple, they mean exactly what we think they mean, what they appear to mean. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4 tells us, God chose individuals who would stand before Him in holiness and blamelessness. He did it because He had predestined them. That is, He had set their destiny in advance. It's not a hard word. Predestined. He'd set the destiny in advance. Uh, the Greek word for predestinate means, is a praorizo. It means to lay out the horizon beforehand. I know this is not a theology class, but, but listen here to some things. Everybody who has had some exposure at all to the Christian God has asked questions about this. Maybe I can help you organize some of your thoughts about this. Uh, four summary statements. Here's number one. Reflecting on election should lead you to worship. Reflecting on election should lead you to worship. That's the context of this passage. Remember that Paul's expectation is that you should hear what he says about election and predestination and rejoice. This is to the praise of his glory. But if all election does is trouble you, if all it does is bother you and make you not want to believe in this God or pursue this God or think about this God, there is something apparently about election and predestination that Paul knows that you don't. Uh, see, maybe the problem is that Paul really hasn't thought about this, about the implications of, the, uh, uh, of election. What about, we want to say to Paul, the people who aren't elect? Some of you are thinking, maybe my brother-in-law is not elect, and I'm really concerned about that. What about him, Paul? And Paul would probably say to you, oh, I never thought about that. Actually, that's not true. Paul had considered very deeply the implications of this doctrine. In fact, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he writes very clearly about election. At the beginning of Romans 9, he says, If it were possible, I would go to hell for my fellow Jews so that they could go to heaven because I want them to believe. Then he writes this long section of Scripture about God's sovereign will in salvation. And at the end of it, he says... Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the way Paul thinks about election. And if you're thinking about election and predestination biblically, it leads you to the point where you say to him be the glory alone forever. Amen. So election should lead to worship. Here's uh, another thought to hang your, uh, uh, another hook to hang your thoughts on. Um, Election is the free choice of God. Election is the free choice of God. Verse 5 says that we're predestined in accordance with his pleasure and will. This is the standard by which God makes this decision. His pleasure, his will. God does not elect and predestine because he owes anybody anything or because you deserve it more or less than someone else. With full knowledge of all the alternatives, God chooses. If if you're a follower of Jesus Christ uh, and and you uh, understand election, there is no way in which you can be self-righteous or proud about it. There's no way in which you can say, yes, of course God chose me because I'm so cute or I'm so smart or I was better than everybody else. In fact, if you look at the church, it will uh, remove from you any illusions you have about people deserving it or not deserving it. Because God chooses all kinds of people. He chooses old people and young people. He chooses black people and white people and Hispanic people and Asian people. He chooses rich people and poor people and smart people and good-looking people and ugly people and, and less smart people. Uh, he chooses Kenyans and Africans and Chinese and Lancastrians and, and he chooses uh, 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 prostitutes and bankers, and lawyers, and postal workers. God's choice is broad, and it's not based on who you are, or who anybody is. It's accordance with his pleasure, and his will. And and the reason that we're still here on earth, the the reason that, that God sustains our church is because there are people in Manor Township and people in Millersville and in Lancaster who, whom God has set his affection upon. They just don't know it yet. And you and I are here to tell them that. I hope that some of those kids come on Wednesday night to Awana and our Awana leaders have the opportunity to say to them, Jesus died for your sins. You can go to heaven if you will believe in him. That's... that's that, that, that's why we're still here doing this, because God, according to his free will, has chosen. All right, here's a third thought to hang, third hook to hang your thoughts on. <laughs> uh, here, this is the most theological statement I'll make today, so here we go. Election is not paired in the Bible with reprobation. Oh, reprobation, what's that? Election is not paired in the Bible with reprobation. R E P R O Bation. Reprobation. Um it's related to the word reprobate. You know, reprobate is someone who's just uh completely bad and and incorrigible and unreformable, a reprobate. The, uh, The first thought that some people think about when they hear the word election is to ask or wonder about the non elect. What about the people who aren't elect? And some Calvinists who are good and godly men have advocated the idea of reprobation or sometimes it's called double predestination. It's the idea that God with the same level of interest and same energy made decisions in an individual's life for heaven or for hell. That he did that like I was talking heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, heaven, hell, hell. That that that's what God did. The problem with double predestination and or reprobation. Is, I understand its logic. It's an effort to describe how God thinks about things, which is nearly difficult. But the Bible doesn't describe God as standing behind election in the same way He stands behind someone's condemnation. We've talked about this before. God is sovereign over all things, but the Bible does not describe Him standing behind love, His loving, merciful acts, in the same way that He stands behind His judging acts. Everybody, we believe, without Christ, that everybody is condemned. Everybody born naturally is alienated from God and destined for an eternity apart from Him. But God... Pluck sinners, pluck sinners out of the fire. And, and God's attitude, if I can describe it, is, is different as the Bible describes election and condemnation. Ephesians 1 does not say anything about those who are not elect. And we should be careful to do that too. Uh, actually, the Bible tells us that God stands toward the unelect as He stands toward all those who are followers of Jesus Christ. He stands against them in saying, uh, uh, you are under my wrath and in issuing the universal call for salvation. Huh. Our role as those who announce salvation in Christ I appreciate what D.L. Moody said about election. He did not, D.L. Moody was not a Calvinist, but I like what he said. He said, God, he prays this way. God, save the elect and elect some more. That's somewhat our attitude in, in the, the joy of announcing the glory of Jesus Christ. Here's a final statement. Perhaps this will help you uh, think about this further. Election is an expression of God's kindness. Election is an expression of God's kindness. You can see this all the way through the text that Paul uses words to describe God's work. Verse 5, In love He predestined us. He mentions this election as a blessing. These are marks of God's glorious grace. The Bible here is not describing a tyrannical or overbearing God, but a gracious, kind, loving God. One who elects personally for His own sake. See, see the reason that we know that election is a mark of God's kindness is because if it wasn't for this grace of God, no one would be saved. We'd all be condemned. There is no human being on earth who deserves God's mercy. Uh, We all deserve His condemnation. We have all fallen short of God's perfect standards. We've all preferred other things besides God. Your natural condition before God is alienation. You are by nature, I am by nature, an object of God's wrath. But He has saved us by His grace. The first question that sometimes looms in people's mind when they think about election is, why not them? Why not the other people? Why not everybody else? Um, Thinking about God like a teacher in the classroom. Little kid, imagine he brings in an extra cupcake for his his friend. Uh, Out of the kindness of his heart, he wants to share his cupcake with his friend. And all the teacher sees in that instance is, uh, 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 the lack of cupcakes for everybody else. The teacher does not see that kindness in that boy's heart in, in sharing. And if you miss God's grace and God's kindness, you're not thinking about election properly. The first question about, to election, about election to ask is not why not them or why not everybody else. The first question to ask is why me? Why would God show his kindness like this to me? Uh, we sing a song regularly, listen to uh, the words. It's a recent chorus that we learned, All I Have is Christ. It goes like this, I once was lost in darkness, darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. This is the work of God that started before the foundation of the world, Him leading us to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me, now all I know is grace. See, election and, and predestination are the beginning of the process where God leads us to Himself. And they come from God's kindness. And the Bible reminds you of this sovereign exercise of God's power because it is a power in your life that is greater than all other powers. Some of you have experienced, if you haven't yet, you will, life-shattering circumstances, life-shattering events. It's astounding. Isn't that astounding how quickly your life can totally be changed, totally transformed? A a car accident, um, a diagnosis, a meeting with your boss where he says, you know, we don't need you here anymore and out you go. Uh, Those are are world changing events, but they are not determinative events. God is determinative, and He has laid out your destiny. There's no need to fear whether or not, uh, no need to fear or wither before the circumstances or powers or challenges of life. There's nothing on the road as you go home that will change your destiny, that can undo God's work. There's nothing in the hospital that can alter your future. There's nothing that will happen at work that can change the horizon of your eternal life because God has exercised His sovereign power. And that's good news. That's why God is a God who is worthy to be praised. Now, one of the key themes in this passage is God's sovereign power. That's there. Let's consider, though, secondly, I want to consider His provisions. What has God used His sovereign power to provide for us? Sometimes when we talk about God's work in our lives, we focus on the gospel and we get to the cross... Uh, which is marvelous. We stop there. But God's sovereign power goes beyond that. It gives us things more than just the cross. In fact, he mentions two more things here that God gives us, standing and sonship. Standing and sonship. The standing is in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to stand holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, Now, immediately in the text we have a challenge here. The focus of this passage is on spiritual blessings, not material blessings. And the challenge is that we're more naturally inclined to value material things instead of spiritual things. Oh, holiness. It's a great gift. Uh, I imagine that every person in this room at some point in time has seen The Price is Right. You know, the show The Price is Right. Uh, It's um, uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, the longest running game shows on television. And you know they give away cars and trips and furniture. Uh, one of the reasons that it's lasted so long, the people watch the prices, right, is because the people on the show, they flip out. Now, Drew Carey, who is the host now, uh, will show them something that they're going to win. You can win this brand new car, and people just scream, right? They go hysterical. They cry, they laugh, they shout up and down, they shake. They're so excited to be on the show, um, imagine what would happen if uh, Drew Carey turned to the announcer and, and the, announcer, the, the the screen came back and the announcer says, you can have a chance today to win holiness. That's right, holiness, the gift of standing faultless before God, clear of all sin and condemnation. You will be privileged to be in God's presence without fault or blame or condemnation. And all this can be yours if the price is right. How do you think the contestants would respond Probably like the the way that they they sometimes respond to, you know, the furniture. That's an ugly couch. I hope I can sell it, you know. I mean, this is holiness. Holiness. I mean, sometimes reading verses 3 and 4, it's somewhat like Friday night we went to uh, uh, watch the Barnstormers play. And I was trying to encourage and interest my four-year-old son. Talking about spiritual blessings is somewhat like trying to convince a four-year-old that baseball is Interesting. The Bible says, though, that your most urgent and most eternally valuable asset in the world is not a new car or not new furniture or a trip to New Orleans. It's holiness and blamelessness. The greatest threat to your marriage, to your life, to your happiness, the greatest source of pain and difficulty in your life is unholiness. You may not realize it, but it's true. Think about it for a minute with me. Imagine that a man drives into his neighborhood. He's, he's, he's coming home from work, and this day on his way home from work, he stopped at the dealership, and he got himself a brand new car. He drives his brand new car home, and there's two guys, two of his neighbors, standing there. The first guy looks at the, at the new car going by, and he's like, oh, Gary got a new car. I hate my car. It's a piece of junk. I'd like a car just like that standing next to him is another guy who says, "Oh, Gary, you got a new car. Man, that's great. He, he really needed one. I'm so happy for Gary and his, his car. Boy, I, you know, we're so thankful to God for the car that, that he gave us. We're just so appreciative. It's, it's, it's amazing. Now, who in that scenario do you think is the happiest person of those three guys? You might be tempted to think that it's the guy in the car, but you, if you've had a new car, you know it's not him, because he's thinking, "Don't scratch it, Don't wreck it. Don't <laughs> touch anything." You know, that's what he's thinking as he drives the new car home. He's not happy. And the guy who's jealous, who 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 hates Gary because he doesn't he's not happy either. But the guy who's standing there, what? Holy and blameless. Satisfied and content. The happiest guy in that situation. Who's happier? The woman who, when she looks in the mirror and sees the toll of aging on her face, has the money to go get some work done? Or the woman who knows uh, and who, who is married to a husband who knows that what really makes her attractive is the quiet beauty of a gentle spirit. Wrinkles don't devastate holy women. The greatest need in my life is, is holiness. My kids, my wife desperately, my church desperately needs me to be a holy person. Your roommate needs you to be holy. Holy. And that doesn't mean you're self-righteous. He, 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 this phrase, in love, in, at the end of verse 4, maybe it goes with holy and blameless. We're not sure. You, God want, chose you to be holy and blameless in love. In the Bible, love and holiness always go together. From heaven, God has called you by His power to be holy and blameless. This is your destiny. And knowing this gives me reason and desire to pursue that here and right now. Paul is setting out the foundation. He's saying, God has, has chosen you to be holy and blameless. So when he gets to chapter 4 and Paul says, this is how you are holy, this is how you live out blamelessness, it, it makes you, I want this. If this is what God has chosen, if this is the good gift that God has given me, this is what I desperately want and I'm going to pursue it now. Give it to me, please. He's given us standing before Him. He has also given us sonship, sonship before Him. Verse 5 says that God predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Sonship, the Bible is talking here about a relationship with Christ that's infused with privilege and position. Um, He's not talking here about making it to heaven by the skin of your teeth. Use your imagination with me for a little bit, all right? Let's imagine here that you got a a picture you can watch in as Noah is letting the animals into the ark, right? He's standing there and God has brought these animals and they come into the ark. And some of them are amazing to Noah. I mean, he hasn't seen some of them. There's an animal that comes onto the ark that he can smell before he can see. You know what it is, a little black and white creature. Noah sees that thing come and says, ooh, God, are you sure we have to take this one? He comes up to the eye and Noah kind of backs up and they go by and Noah says, down there way at the end is your spot. It's far away from everybody. How would Noah be different if that skunk, if he sees his son coming up the ramp under the ark? Oh, come on in. Come on in. We built this ark together and God's going to save us through it. Some people tell me that in the Christian life, they feel more like the skunks on the ark than the sons. They feel like, well, God's going to let them into heaven, but it's going to be like, oh, really? I've got to let you in? Well, you found Jesus. So I guess you have to come in. The Bible here is not talking about being just welcomed in just by the skin of your teeth or just accepted because, well, God has to. He's, he's saying, God, as sons, he predestined you to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ and you are welcome you may come you have privilege you have position before him everything that I need for the life that God has called me to live mine because of God's unstoppable love do you pray that way? you Are ready to face the challenges that will happen to you tomorrow at work because in light of the fact that you are God's Son, that He chose you before the foundation of the world for that privilege? Notice here that in these three verses, all of these provisions, all this power comes to us through Jesus Christ. It's in every verse. We receive these things by being rightly related to Him. And the reason they come through Jesus Christ, we'll talk about it more next week, is because it was through Him and what He did on the cross that God dealt decisively with our unholiness. And with our alienation from Him. Jesus, who died in our place, who paid the penalty we owe, is the one who opens the gate of heaven for us. It was God's sovereign plan. I want you to join me in my backyard for a few minutes. And I want you to listen. If the wind is blowing just right, we'll hear Bill Lapp up on the track, track, cheering on his daughter. Come on, Allison. Come on, Allison. Go, go, go. And if you're listening to Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, on your way to work tomorrow, you should hear God the Father saying, go, go. Go, I've given you everything you need. I have chosen you. You are mine. Go, go. You can do it. And that is a God who is worthy of our praise. Let's pray, shall we? Father, these are deep waters that we have walked us through, and we hope that uh, we can be like C.S. Lewis, with have hearts that are uh, unbidden. With they respond with unbidden joy to the truths that are here. You have not told us about your sovereignty to confuse us, to discourage us. You have told us about it to uh, uh, brighten us and to fill us with joy and gratitude and make us respond to you in worship and in praise. Father, in light of your great gifts, how can we not listen to you in the days that are to come as we heed from Ephesians how you want us to live and the choices that you want us to make? Give us gumption. Give us, in light of your uh, sovereign power, uh, uh, gumption and moxie and strength and enthusiasm for the doing of your work and your will. We're so thankful you indeed are a great God and we pray these prayers and ask these things to the praise of your glorious grace. And together we God's people said, Amen.